Welcome back to Meet Kevin Report number 30. We've hit a new decade of Meet Kevin Reports. The 30s. <laughs> Welcome aboard. Today, we've got quite a bit to talk about. We'll talk uh, Tesla, Russia. Uh, we'll also talk uh, about how the bull thesis could be wrong. And uh, we'll get started by looking at some charts that uh, kind of start by suggesting uh, that the markets might want to start pricing some of that in as well. So we'll take a look at all of this together and more. So uh, the first thing that we want to pay attention to is the five-year break-even rate. Five-year break-even rate, we expect, really needs to fall a lot in order for the Federal Reserve to really feel confident that they're in a position to pause on interest rate hikes. Well, unfortunately, the uh, uh, break-even rate, uh, measured by the five-year, uh, it's the five-year break-even rate is a measure of uh, the difference between tips and five-year treasuries. Ignore really how it's calculated for a moment, but here, when I remove myself on the chart, take a look at the, what's happened just in January to the five-year break-even rate. So if we go ahead and grab, let's uh, grab a line over here, and we see this measure of the five-year break-even, we can see it's been rising essentially since the beginning of the year, about, uh, let's call it maybe the second week of January. And uh, the five-year break-even is now at heights that we haven't really seen since October and November. Uh, it's really been rising quite a bit here. Uh, and unfortunately, we, we ideally want to see this trend down because this would send more of a signal to Jerome Powell and the Fed that inflation expectations are anchored. Uh, and right now, it, it doesn't look that way. We were on a pretty strong downtrend, but unfortunately, it looks as though that downtrend is beginning to break, uh, unfortunately. So as, as break-even rates move up, we do believe at the same time, markets will start pricing in a fear that, okay, well, we're going to need a higher terminal Fed funds rate. And that's also exactly what's happened. Here is a chart of the Federal Reserve's or the expectation of the Fed terminal rate. And you can see really at the end of the year, October over here on the left, November, December, we were really consistent with the terminal rate expectation of 4.9%. This was despite the, Fed, the Fed saying in December via their summary of economic projections that the Fed was going to raise rates to about 5.1%. That was the expectation. Markets did not even blink in December. Markets did not even remotely care about the Federal Reserve suggesting that they were going to move break even or that they were going to go about 5%. Uh, in fact, for almost all of December, markets priced in less than 5%. And it wasn't really until recently, uh, and, and I'm going to assume this is some form of uh, data anomaly. Uh, on the right, you have some kind of really bizarre one-day spike up. Uh, I, I'm not sure if that'll get smoothed out today or what's going on there. But anyway, uh, right now, that, uh, that terminal rate expectation is sitting at 5.31%. And you could see this trend up really since about uh, the, uh, the first week of February when we got our jobs report, when we got our CPI reports, uh, when we got our PPI reports. I mean, every, every report is showing a stronger economy. And that unfortunately is leading to the market to start essentially pricing in this fear of, okay, well, we'll have to have a higher for longer regime. And uh, I think that uh, until we get convincingly lower uh, figures, probably that's going to be the case, higher for longer. We, we already expect that. The big problem, though, that comes with this is because of this potential rise in break-evens, uh, the five-year break-even curve, again, shown on screen here, because of this breaking the downtrend, we could potentially end up getting a Jerome Powell at the next Federal Reserve meeting that's a lot more aggressive 
than what we would otherwise expect. So I think markets are likely to start trying to position to bearishly price in, whether it's through short selling or whatever, to, to price in a more aggressive Fed come March. Of course, by the March 22nd meeting, we'll have a stronger uh, set of data. We'll have more data. We'll have less seasonally uh, affected data. Uh, January data tends to be the most seasonally adjusted. It tends to be one that is very winter-based and comes off data from uh, fr from the last um well, that comes off of weather data, for example. We, if we have a colder December and a warmer January, you could end up getting more spring sales in January and more sales pushed onto December, or sorry, onto January, which if we kind of just broadly zoom out, is what happened. We had a retail sales disaster in December and a boom in January. We had colder weather in December and warmer weather in January. So it aligns, right? But nonetheless, markets are starting to get nervous again, at least when we look at what the bond market is doing regarding that five-year break-even yield. And so that's going to be something we'll, as investors, we're definitely going to want to keep an eye on. Uh, and so far, as we've been keeping an eye on it, almost every day it's just been tick up, tick up, tick up, tick up. So Keep an eye on that. We don't want to get too blindingly bullish. Uh, Walmart raised its dividend this morning. They beat expectations of a buck fifty-one for EPS coming in at one seventy-one. Their inventory year over year for the quarter was actually down two point six percent. So you're seeing some of that inventory uh, disaster really get fed through businesses. You're not seeing as much of that uh, uh, oversupply as what we've previously seen uh, going into uh, last, uh, going into the beginning of 2020 too, uh, when uh, finally supply chains were catching up and all of these insane uh, levels of orders were coming in where you had companies like Target and Walmart showing inventories up anywhere between 30 to 70%. Quite remarkable. Total stock or uh, total compensation at Walmart was up 8.8%. Their revenue beat as well. Home Depot posted some strong earnings uh, with uh, profit coming in three cents above expectations at $3.30. I'll tell you, when you look at the financials for Home Depot, you're actually, it, it's amazing how much money this company makes. Uh, they make a lot, a lot of money. Uh, and uh, it, it was pretty remarkable just pulling up their investor sheet, which we'll do right now. Here, look at this. Uh, this is a company that brings in thir $35.8 billion in net sales. And their costs of their sales is only 67%. For a retailer, that's actually really incredibly good. I mean, you compare this to something like Amazon, and, and you're almost you're almost upside down uh, on Amazon. It's it's remarkable. Uh, it looks like Walmart right now on this topic, by the way, is providing bad guidance, which is actually what Walmart did as, or uh, Home Depot did as well. Let's listen in for a moment. Now, uh, looks like 590 to 605, and that is below the consensus estimate of 650. Walmart CFO also said the company is taking a pretty cautious outlook on the rest of the year. Uh, and we should also point out that uh, the same store, uh, U.S. sales number, uh, a little bit muted from where expectations were, 2 to 2.5% now versus 3% uh, estimates. And don't miss Walmart CEO Doug McMillan on Mad Money with Jim Cramer tonight at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Let's continue that conversation about Home Depot. That's interesting. So you actually had Walmart uh, initially do quite well. Uh, with uh, or at least the market reaction was positive uh, when Walmart initially released their earnings, but it looks like that's turned uh, negative on weak guide going forward. Same problem you had at Home Depot, but just to finish, 
that note on Home Depot here. I have, and, and we usually we do just we, we'll go deeper into fundamentals and that in the course member live streams. We'll do sort of more course member Q and A on on fundamental analysis, TA, whatever, uh, real estate analysis. But uh, so so course members should look at this and go, that's insane for for a goods seller, right? This is an incredible profit margin that this company has, and uh, it's no surprise that they end up bringing. Uh, almost 10% of all their sales to net earnings for a retailer, that's insane. Uh, I mean, that's really, really impressive. So $3.3 billion there to net earnings. So, uh, I mean, phenomenal numbers that you get out of uh, Home Depot. But but again, both of uh, Walmart and Home Depot negative in pre-market on uh, weak guidance. And that's probably one of the biggest fears that markets have is that ultimately uh, companies will will miss on earnings substantially, right? This is typically what we're hearing as the bear argument. That, oh, oh, just get ready. The earnings misses are coming. <laughs> so that's that's uh, that's been pretty typical and something we've been talking about regularly. Uh, still, nonetheless, go ahead and look at the QQQ. Obviously, we're, we're off the bottom. Uh, and, uh, and and we sort of broke that downtrend in the 200-day moving average, but but boy, we've uh, we've certainly um, you know gotten rejected at the second Fibonacci level here. Uh, so we'll see what happens uh, over the next few weeks as we get uh, prepared for February data in March. Uh, that'll be pretty incredible. So uh, all right, so we've looked at uh, break-evens, we've looked at uh, earnings a little bit here, just briefly from Walmart, Home Depot. The uh, one more thing that I'd like to do is look at the financial conditions index. Uh, let's take a look at that together. So the um, Goldman Financial Conditions Index gives us a good idea of uh, how how at least the market is responding to expectations of higher inflation uh, via break-evens or whatever. And the Goldman Financial Conditions Index, at the very least, has been rising in February to potentially compensate for this higher break-even yield, which Jerome Powell in his last meeting indicated, hey, look, as long as financial conditions are tightening in response to new data, then maybe the Fed doesn't actually have to respond in any other unique way. Uh, of course, we, we do just continue to expect these 25 BP hikes until we can be convinced that, hey, you know, the Fed's mission is becoming a little bit more complete. That's still a while out, though. And uh, what you're really, what I'm paying attention to a lot, obviously, is the movement on the 10-year. The movement on the 10-year is really incredible. Uh, we're, we're knocking on the door of 3.9. It seems like most institutions are convinced it's going back over 4, potentially to 4 and a quarter percent. And uh, as we, uh, as we essentially await uh, better inflationary data, the the yields here continue to go up, which will just punish real estate even more than we expect. So. Um, Keep an eye on that for real estate. I think there was a lot of bullishness that, oh, January's back to buy time, and, and people seem to be a little excited about the marketing. And based on at least what's happening in rates, it could be misleading uh, and, and could be misplaced, could be very temporary. So we'll see. Uh, all right, now let's talk about Elon. Oh, Elon, stand by. Take a big old sip of this coffee here. Went skiing yesterday, by the way. Boy, that was fun. Uh, I I don't think I've uh, I've had that much fun skiing in a while. It's actually been a while since I was personally skiing. It's been about 13 months, but the last time I went, uh, I just I I, I weighed a lot more, uh, like literally 35 to 40 pounds more, 
And I, I could not ski. I couldn't ski without stopping the last time. Uh, it was tough. This this time, I, I just kept going. It felt great. So uh, really happy about that. So uh, hopefully uh, hopefully y'all are having fun with the winter as well. Uh, but Tahoe, thumbs up to Tahoe. Really nice. Uh, okay, so let's get into Tesla. All right, five seconds for Tesla. Well, I might take another second here, actually. Hold on. We must find... There's a piece I want to cover. Ah, here it is. Got it. Got it, got it, got it. All right, here we go. Now we've got to touch on a Tesla and a price target by a company that has billions of dollars under not only management, but specifically in Tesla stock. We're going to go through what their price target is for both 2025 and 2030. But first, what I'd like to do is look at an opinion piece by a Bloomberg uh, journalist. And I have to say, it's pretty good. I think it really hits on some sentiment. Uh, and I love the title. Musk has turned Tesla's, quote, failing into winning. And really what, what he's starting off by saying is that there's so much fear, uncertainty, and doubt uh, that's placed on Tesla that it's almost like the old Shakespearean line of, methinks thou protest too much. I've changed that slightly, but that's what we generally colloquially say. Uh, and, and that's really to say that it seems like so much of the hate for Tesla is misplaced. Now, there's so much criticism, while at the same time as there's so much criticism, you end up uh, with a company that outperforms over and over and over again. It's really incredible. I mean, I have to say, from a personal point of view, uh, I, I could not believe when somebody came up to me and said that they actually uninstall Twitter solely because of Elon Musk, that they won't buy a Tesla solely because of Elon Musk. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how much CNN are you watching? Because the hate is totally misplaced. They can't actually give you a really good reason for hating on Tesla. One of the things people do who hate on Tesla is they talk about uh, recalls. And, and, and I love this. This was a fantastic uh, uh, quote here. It was actually from a Forbes article. Sawyer Merritt here uh, uh, quoted this Forbes piece. It was fantastic. Since January 2022, Tesla has had, quote, 21, quote, unquote, recalls for about 4.1 million vehicles, with some vehicles counted multiple times. 99% of those vehicles were fixed using a software update that did not require customers to go into a dealership or replace car parts. And remember, like, when, when you get a recall for a car, it is an opportunity for the dealership to sell you more service, right? So in some regard, the recall game is actually profitable for companies. They get people to bring their cars into the dealership thinking they're getting something for free. But of course, when you go in, inconveniently taking time, obviously, out of your day to actually go there and do it and have somebody drive you back and drop you off or whatever, you actually often get sold some form of other upgrades or service because you may as well get that additional service done because you're already there. You've already gone through the inconvenience of going there. So the sunk cost fallacy sets in. People are more likely to spend money on their vehicles because they're already there. But going back to the rest of this tweet right here, 
uh, from this Forbes piece. Meanwhile, Fiat, Chrysler, Kia, Hyundai, VW, BMW had no software fixes, and Ford, Nissan, GM, and Mercedes did have software fixes, but they were able to only fix 1% of the Ford recalls, 2% of the Nissan recalls, 32% of the GM recalls, and 17% of the Mercedes recalls were fixed via software updates. Whereas, again, with Tesla, 99% of Teslas were fixed using some form of, of software update. Here's that Forbes piece, by the way, if you want to look at it, Tesla recalls 4 million vehicles since January of 2022. You could uh, read the rest of that Forbes article if you'd like. But really, there, there does seem to be this hysteria around hating Tesla. And what's remarkable is, despite all of this hate, somehow Tesla continues to get stronger. And this is what the Bloomberg writer here is saying. While everyone thought Musk's entanglement with Twitter would be damaging to Tesla or the recall FUD, the, uh, you know, uh, business practices, lawsuits, whatever, what you end up getting are results that prove otherwise. Tesla, they say, is now turning $100 of revenue into an industry-leading $26 of profit for their uh, for gross profit. Now, keep in mind, that is expected to go down to about $20. So I don't want anybody to freak out when we see margin potentially go down to $20, at least in the next few quarters after some of the price reductions that we've seen and until some of those uh, commodity costs actually start flowing through as lower, barring any for further increases. Keep in mind, the Tesla in their last earnings call told us this. They told us they expect to potentially see gross profit go down to $20. And then, of course, the goal would be to see that rise back to $30, about that 30% margin. But even at $26, this is seen as the widest gross margin uh, really in the industry. And if you look at their net profit margin, the way this they wrote this and then showed a chart here was a little confusing. But this chart right here is actually a chart of their net profit margin. Tesla's net profit margin far exceeds any of its competitors. And what you really want to pay attention to is BYD is right here on the right. It's this orange line. Let's go. Let's use the laser here. There we go. Uh, it's this orange line right here. You can see that their net, uh, at least on this chart here for last year, is sitting somewhere under 5%, right around 3 to 4% is where BYD sits. Volkswagen knocking on the door of uh, probably, what, half of that? Maybe maybe somewhere around 2%. Uh, Toyota is over a little bit higher at about 7%. Uh, and Tesla, on a net basis, is sitting up here at uh, 16 to 17%. Net. That's really incredible. Now, what's also really incredible is you just had the, uh, the, the uh, who was it? Uh, ah, yeah, to Mr. Toyoda, uh, who was the CEO over at Toyota. He ended up saying... Hey, about a month ago, he was interviewed and the Wall Street Journal ran this story. He ended up saying, ah, I'm part of the silent majority. Everybody wants a hybrid car. This is Toyota, often regularly deemed one of the most reliable vehicles in the industry, right? Uh, vehicle manufacturers in the industry with some of the highest resale values. They're convinced on hybrids. Yet within a month of that, it turns out he's getting the boot. And they're replacing him with a CEO who realizes, no, 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 we need to double down on electric vehicles, not just hybrids. But let's keep going with the, with the Bloomberg piece here. <clears throat> so you've got 30 analysts have a buy recommendation on Tesla, a record for the company since their IPO in 2010. Number of upgrades on the company rose 32% last year. 
even though Tesla share prices plummeted 65% amid a nasty bear market for tech-related stocks. Bloomberg's consensus rating, which quantifies analyst forecasts, reveals no other automaker was so emphatically upgraded. Perhaps the reason why analysts are so enamored is because Tesla continues to prove doubters wrong. And these were some interesting quotes here. Listen to this. Model 3 uh, sedan sales increased from basically zero to about half a million units in 2022. Uh, they had, so they had less than 2,000 in 2017, ran that up 278 times to about half a mil in 2022. I don't think it's necessarily really fair to use that 278 number because obviously, if, I mean, you could just say they increased sales infinitely from zero, right? But from a comparison point of view, it's very interesting that the Toyota Prius has seen its sales fall 66% during the same period. And while the next biggest uh, arrival for electric vehicles saw their sales at BYD rise just 17 times. Now, BYD is crushing it, okay? Don't get me wrong. BYD is crushing it. They do not have anywhere near the margin Tesla does. They have somewhere around one-fourth to one-fifth of the net margin. We just saw that on the prior chart. But anyway, uh, this was this is pretty remarkable. And, and, and I think they make a really good argument here that... Hey, look, despite all of the hate around Tesla, Tesla's killing it. But beyond that, some of the price targets from people with massive amounts of money, like Baron Funds, which has billions of dollars of assets under management, are really incredible. Let's take a look at some of these price targets. So this is a, um, uh, you could actually read this full article in uh, Seeking Alpha. Uh, anyway, uh, the Baron Funds letter was, was posted here. And they talk a little bit about the history of them investing in Tesla, first making 1.6% uh, of their asset under management uh, uh, purchase into Tesla back in 2016. Uh, and since then, obviously, uh, Tesla has grown substantially. They did end up selling around 6.8 million shares between 2020 and 2022, about a fourth of their shares to reduce their allocation to Tesla because it ran so much. Their average sell was about 221 a share slightly above where it sits now. Uh, and, and of course, this was over the last two years here, uh, but they still hold 17.6 million shares of Tesla, which is valued at about $3.1 billion. Pretty remarkable. But look at their price target for the Baron Fund. And, and it's just the show. This is, you know, when, when people are bullish in the industry, it's, it's really interesting to see if they're actually putting their money where their mouth is. And here's an example where they are. We believe Tesla's share price would reach $500 per share in 2025. Now, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here, but that happens to be my price target for 2025. So maybe they're watching my videos. If you are, I'd love to do an interview with you. <laughs> and if you're not, that's okay. <laughs> because I don't want to read my own opinion. I want to read other people's opinions. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, and uh, their 2030 price target, which I, I don't really have a 2030 price target. Uh, I mean, I, I've mentioned some out there. There's somewhere out there. We've done some numbers on in the past, but... It's not super salient in the back of my mind. But anyway, 1500 is their 2030 price target. And they are still reiterating that price target today. That's based on our expectations for Tesla's long-term sales growth, high industry-leading profit margins achieved for its exceptional products. Not only are there approximately 80 million cars sold per year, but the, quote, car park worldwide that needs to be replaced is more than two billion vehicles. These are cars powered by pollution emitting ice engines, internal combustion engines. I mean, that's kind of like saying an ATM machine, right? 
uh, automated teller machine machine, <laughs> right? It, it, ice engine is kind of like internal combustion engine engine. So now we gotta be careful on that. But anyway, uh, if you just say ice, it, it sounds a little funny. So anyway, gas cars, gas guzzlers. <laughs> there, simpler. Anyway, this is pretty remarkable and a remarkable price target. And, and it makes sense. I mean, after all, the profit margins alone speak for themselves at Tesla. Where is it? Where? Oh, they were on my uh, in my Bloomberg piece. Stand by. Uh, the charts over here are ones that we talk about regularly at Tesla. And we could really use these and, and model uh, some of the more, in my opinion, worst case scenarios with, with Tesla pricing by seeing, hey, how what does Tesla look like even if we end up with only a 20% margin and potentially lower growth rates, right? Uh, and so if we do that, well, let's model it together and let's see what we get. So let's go to a 20% uh, gross margin. Let's assume 20 vehicles, uh, or, or here, by 2025, let's assume 4 million vehicles, and we'll go with uh, 47,000 revenue per vehicle. We'll keep everything kind of stable here uh, that we generally do. So short of re-explaining this whole sheet, again, if we go with just a 20% gross margin, which is pretty weak, we expect that to rise up to 30% again, the end of the decade, maybe within the next few years, who knows. Uh, at, uh, at a 30% assumed growth rate, which is lower than, that's probably the lowest part of the range that, uh, that Wall Street is generally expecting, you're still sitting at about 400 bucks per share at a 30% growth rate and then a 1.67x peg, which is a very reasonable ratio, very, very reasonable for, for a company growing at 30% to be selling for 1.67 times peg. We're closer to like 0 0.8, 0 0.9 right now. Uh, on, on what Tesla's selling for. Uh, but it's, it's uh, long-term average is, is substantially even above 1.6. But anytime, anyway, so uh, if, if we just change that to where the margin is approximately right now, and we go to say, uh, oh, I don't know, let's go with an expense of 74, that gives us profit of about 26. So if we go with about a 26% margin, uh, that number changes to 533 bucks pretty quickly. But you could see how every 1% makes a difference. You go 533 bucks, we just change margin 1%. Uh, 533 turns into 511. So you're looking about 20, every 1% of margin at Tesla is worth about $22 per share. It's quite a bit because that margin's going to fluctuate. Uh, and I do think there's going to be some fear around what happens in the Q1, Q2 earnings for Tesla, uh, specifically because margin will probably be its weakest during those quarters. And those will be quarters that, uh, that, that we're also still evaluating. Hey, is inflation ever going to go away? Is the Fed ever going to relax? So uh, these, these are, uh, you know, these, these are things to uh, uh, pay attention to. Uh, from some comments here, uh, we've got someone saying, Mr. Toyota is a genius slash sarcasm. <laughs> Someone's laughing too. How much CNN are you watching? <laughs> I, I mean, I hate to say it, but they seem to be one of the pure ones that seem to be bagging on them pretty here, pretty pretty heavily here. Have you guys seen the electric solar-powered yachts? You know, I think I hate to say it, but I think a lot of anything, any solar-powered engine for now, probably just clickbait. Most of the solar power that we can actually support on any kind of vehicle right now just goes into preconditioning cabin temperatures for either cars or boats. Uh, you know, anything widely, if it's, if it's powered solely by solar, it'd probably take, you know, 12 hours or more of sitting in the sun, potentially days of sitting in the sun to actually fill up your batteries. Is it possible? Yeah. I mean, to some regard, we could put a Tesla, you could put a solar panel on a Tesla and potentially 
charge the sucker up if it sits out in the sun for a couple weeks. <laughs> you know, I mean, eventually it'll 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 charge it up. Uh, solar power isn't quite there uh, for for compact form factors yet. Now, can you do it with solar farms? Absolutely, big fan, big fan of solar farms. Uh, I think we should have a lot more solar farms out in, in uh, you know, the desert areas of California or Vegas. We've already got solar farms, but we should have even more. Uh, I think that's a phenomenal way to do it. Uh, and now you're also producing solar at scale. Throwing solar panels on, on smaller vehicles, though, I, I think is mostly just clickbait. And, and trying to make people, you know, be able to say, oh, I'm green. You know, that kind of be like, oh, my jet has a solar panel on it. It's like, it's, it's just... It's like bullshit, <laughs> excuse me, but for, for you know, uh, what, what it's actually producing. So I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan or, or a believer in any kind of solar panels on vehicles, and I probably won't be for a very long period of time because the solar panel technology, its capture rate is still very, very weak. Uh, I mean, its efficiency is, gosh, well, solar panel efficiency has got to be somewhere in the 20% range, so it's still really inefficient. But what's remarkable is, as much as we're seeing solar panels spread, imagine if we could just increase the efficiency of solar panels. Uh, I mean, they're already good in, in bulk factor, good enough to be on the roof of your house, for example, good enough to be in a solar uh, in a solar farm. Not there yet for vehicles, but but uh, there's so so much potential science that can go into making the capture technology for solar so much better. Uh, that uh, that that in the long term, there'll be some pretty neat advances. And yeah, I think in the long term, in the future, sure, solar panel on vehicles, I think, uh, would, would be a possibility. But I don't think we're anywhere close to that. I think we're 20, 30 years away from seeing that. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. It's still interesting. Anyway, uh, a yacht was unveiled in Dubai. Uh, the hull of the yacht was all solar panels. That's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, what's up, Hustle Smart? Um, you guys still don't buy it? Uh, especially the hull of the ship. I'm like, you really need, the angle of incidence matters so much. And I mean, maybe you could argue you're getting some reflectivity off of the water to try to power uh, this, but I, I wonder how much uh, how much efficiency falls now if the hull of the ship, in, instead of, you know, actually pointing at the sun, uh, is exposed to um, uh, to solar, the solar radiation uh, that, that brings the solar energy. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not buying that one. <laughs> and, and then and then when I hear Dubai too, I'm like, okay, like a world of like facade, man. Come on. Uh, and I'm like, sorry if you live in Dubai, but you probably know it or have been to Dubai. It's it's all facade. Uh, it, but anyway, <laughs> so, you know what? It's very fitting actually that the facade of a solar panel boat was unveiled in Dubai. The world of facades, or the the the, the capital of facades, I should say. Anyway, <sighs> keep going. <laughs> So let's take a pre-check of markets here and uh, see how we're doing. And let's see, again, really paying attention to those 10-year treasury yields, and then we've got some other topics to cover. Uh, so futures, everything's down about 1% of futures. I don't really buy future movements that much, though, but I will go ahead and jump into looking at BTC. Let's take a look. <laughs> All right. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit of a drop there uh, on uh, on the five minute charts for BTC starting uh, really around midnight. Nice little sell down there, uh, right at midnight. Gosh, that almost almost makes you feel like it was somewhat algorithmic here. But look at that. Uh, you get about thirty five minutes past midnight. Drop, drop, drop. We uh, we we lose that uh, over twenty five handle, sitting now at twenty four six. 
Uh, zoom out though on the day chart, uh, and you can see you're you're still sitting uh, above, well above twenty thousand, well off the fifteen k that we were dragging along for a while there in November and December, uh, which we visited in the summer as well. So uh, pretty nice recovery over here. Nothing super alarming here. Really, if anything, just aligning with the indices down about 0.9% uh, in the last 24 hours. Interesting. Very, very interesting. So we'll see ends up, uh, we'll see how that ends up, uh, um, what's it called? Uh, performing for the day, uh, sort of a leading indicator, but we'll, we'll see how the week goes. Okay, uh, so the next thing we got to talk about, we got to do a little bit of talk about Russia, and then we've got to talk about, I really want to talk about how I could be wrong. I think that's, it's really important to talk about, so we're going to talk about that as well. Uh, so, uh, but first, uh, let's get a, a little bit of talking about Russia out of the way. Let's pull this up here. All right. The temperature of the solar panel has to be around 100 Fahrenheit to capture solar radiation efficiently. Oh, that's interesting. Rachel Sun you from us. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that. Thank you for that. Uh, the hull not getting direct sunlight. That's really, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I just don't, I, call me, call me a tinfoil hat skeptic. I don't, I don't believe you're a solar powered boat. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but I will take a look at that. Thank you. All right. <clears throat> now we've got to talk about Russia because we've got the Financial Times reporting of potential attacks getting set up on Western infrastructure outside of Ukraine. We've got to talk about that because that would essentially be inviting World War III, unless, of course, it was done under the guise of sabotage. We'll see. We'll see. But tensions continue to rise, and we've got a big catalyst coming up in three days, which is already starting to set up over today, actually. We've got a top diplomat from China who just arrived in Moscow about an hour ago. That's this morning here on February 21st. And what's remarkable about this is the timing lines up with the, the three-day catalyst that we have, the one-year anniversary for the Russian incursion into Ukraine. Why that matters is because China is actually widely seen as potentially trying to broker peace and offering a peace deal in three days. Maybe that peace deal is already being negotiated now since the top diplomat has just uh, arrived uh, in Moscow. But this is coming at the same time as we have warnings that there could be potential attacks on Western infrastructure. We'll talk about those attacks in just a moment. But first, let's talk about this piece right here. Here's a Wall Street Journal piece where uh, the Wall Street Journal makes this case that China is worried about potentially losing one of their strongest allies, one of their strongest trading partners. Obviously, China is widely trying to reduce its reliance on the West. Uh, and they're already sort of engaging in a different style of warfare with the West, not only with, uh, you know, the drama over the nonsense of the, the weather balloon or spy balloon, but also via the theft of our trade secrets. We just had another massive theft over at ASML, chip manufacturing company by a Chinese individual. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and this is partly because of, uh, well, essentially programs and, and rules where the United States has passed laws like the CHIPS Act banning China from using advanced manufacturing technology. So China now steals the information and then tries to copy it. This is similar to what they've done with, for example, our fighter jets. 
the plans for our F-35 fighter jet were stolen by China. And then China, a few years later, ended up coming out with a very similar looking jet, a Gen 5 jet. Now, most of China's fleet is still the older Gen 2, Gen 3 stuff. Roughly about 50%, according to Bloomberg, of China's uh, Air Force is still the older generation, the 1990s vehicles. I, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, they're certainly not spending as much on defense as we are in America. Uh, by some accounts, their estimates are that China would spend somewhere around $250 million on defense, whereas we're spending closer to a trillion dollars on defense, closer to maybe $900 uh, billion. But still, that's roughly 4x what China is spending. But anyway, uh, obviously, Russia is very important to China. Uh, and uh, there, there was even talk that potentially Putin uh, scheduled his incursion into Ukraine around the Olympics, where, which were held in Beijing last year. Which what's remarkable about that is it, it, it somewhat suggests that how convenient right after the Olympics in China were over, what happened? The incursion comes. Uh, and there is almost this sort of uh, uh, deemed respect from, from Russia uh, to China and potentially vice versa. And this Wall Street Journal article gives us a little bit of insight into maybe why. So what they talk about is Beijing potentially fearing a really weak Russia after this war and how the war is starting to maybe weigh on Russia's capability of actually being a supportive trading partner for them. And as a result, China is potentially considering helping Russia end this war, either by brokering a peace deal or becoming a, a weapon supplier for them. Now, they're already deemed to be supplying things like aircraft equipment, jamming equipment, but they're in recent days talking about potentially supplying actual lethal weapons to Russia. Now, the West sees that as an escalation. In Beijing, the way they're trying to spin the narrative is basically saying, hey, look, if we start providing weapons to Russia, Russia becomes more reliant on China. And if Russia is more reliant on China, China potentially has the opportunity to twist Russia's arm into brokering a peace deal between Ukraine and, and, and Russia. And, and there is the potential that China could pull that off. And that'd be fantastic because I think everybody wants this war to end. Uh, but listen to this. You do also get harsh rhetoric, right? Example. China's foreign ministry on Monday hit back against U.S. allegations that providing lethal weapons would really provoke a World War III. And they say it's the U.S. side, not the Chinese side, that's providing an endless flow of weapons to Ukraine. The U.S. isn't qualified to point fingers at China or order China around. We would never accept uh, U.S. criticizing Chinese-Russian relations. Well, yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, that, that is a fair point. <laughs> uh, the U.S. criticizing China for potentially supplying weapons to Russia is a little ironic. Um, obviously, the U.S. is going to do that and be angry about it because they want Ukraine to, to uh, win and this war to end. Uh, and that was really characterized by Joe Biden getting on a train for 10 hours to hang out in Kiev in a, in, you know, a secret, um, secret visit uh, to the capital of Ukraine and, and reiterating this unending support for Ukraine, which is also evidenced by the, uh, you know, nearly $100 billion of, of U.S. money that's gone to support uh, Ukraine. Now, uh, this Wall Street Journal article dives in a little bit more on potentially Beijing now trying to step up the negotiating uh, posture to end this war. Uh, and I think I think that's a good thing, actually. I mean, obviously, I think everybody wants to see this, this war come to an end. But it's also a good thing that makes sense. It makes logical sense 
for China was doing its best to really rebuild its economy after three years of a COVID lockdown. And so far, things are going great in terms of travel and entertainment spending. Subway traffic uh, and car congestion by some measures is actually higher than 2019 pre-pandemic levels. So you are seeing a travel and entertainment and, and really consumerism rebound in China. But remember, consumers only make up about a third of their GDP. Housing makes up two thirds. It's the opposite in America. In America, the consumer makes up 70% of, of the economy. So China is really reliant on industry, uh, or the real estate market and consumer, everything firing to actually have the growth that China is looking for. And having a trading partner with Russia that is not crippled because it's basically destroyed itself, uh, spending to oblivion uh, for, for what feels like a very somewhat pointless war, mostly I would say the Western argument is pointless war. Uh, of course, the, the uh, argument from Russia is that they were forced into this uh, because of the expansion and threat of the expansion of NATO. But either way, this in my opinion, and Chinese visit, uh, visiting uh, Moscow is actually a very good positive uh, catalyst. Uh, and hopefully there is a negotiated end. However, and unfortunately, there's still talk as running in the Financial Times today about potentially attacks by Russia on Western infrastructure. Now, look, we've gone through this idea that uh, Russia sabotaged the Nord Stream pipelines. Uh, there have been arguments from journalists that know it was actually the CIA in conjunction with, with some of the um, European navies that ended up planting C4 and uh, on these pipelines and blowing these pipelines up, leading to a massive methane leak uh, that is a climate change disaster. And of course, the United States doesn't want their actual hands on, on responsibility for that, which the United States clearly denies. But there's a lot of circumstantial evidence clearly pointing to the idea that the United States was heavily involved in the destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines. But anyway, uh, the Netherlands are now warning about Russian attempts to sabotage their energy infrastructure with uh, the Dutch intelligence authorities warning that Russians have been essentially scouting uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Netherlands energy infrastructure, specifically their wind farms, their offshore wind farms. And what, they're, what they describe in this article is essentially uh, ships that have been showing particular interest to the offshore wind farms in the North Sea and that uh, the Netherlands are stepping up their security and, and they've been escorting multiple ships out of uh, their particular uh, you know, economic zones and regions. And, and they believe that Russia could potentially try to attack uh, some of the energy infrastructure uh, of, of uh, the West, in particular to force them to rely more heavily on uh, potentially reestablished relations with Russia uh, and, and Russian gas or Russian oil uh, as a way of saying, no, no, don't go renewable, continue to rely on Russia. Now, of course, that makes sense on one hand that Russia might do so. Of course, the last thing we want is the expansion of, of a potential World War III. This is why the sooner this war ends, the better. Uh, but look at the way you've got these axes setting up. Right, you've got Russia loading strategic nuclear missiles uh, on on uh, their warships, something they haven't done since the 70s. You've got Iran building suicide drone factories in uh, Russia, just 600 miles outside 
of Moscow. Uh, that just announced, by the way, so not built yet, but but Iran's been selling weapons uh, to Russia. You've got the United States taking uh, weapons stolen, essentially, from Iran and, and or I should say, seized uh, and, and potentially being delivered against UN conventions to Ukraine. Uh, you've got Russia now stepping out of the START Treaty, which limits how many ICBMs you can produce. You've got uh, of course, the belief that uh, uh, Japan and Taiwan and the United Kingdom and NATO are all supportive of Ukraine on one side. On the other side, you've clearly got uh, China, Russia, uh, and Iran heavily working together uh, to support uh, Russia. And, and we'll see. Uh, but, but so far, things are very, very much brewing in negative directions. And it seems like Every day, there's more negativity around the potential trending towards a World War III, which, which is terrible. Obviously, that would be the worst case scenario. So hopefully in this segment, we've been able to cover that there's at least hope because it does not seem like the West or Ukraine uh, have, have really been able to propose anything that's remotely interesting to Russia. And hopefully China can pull off some form of uh, negotiation to actually make that happen. Because otherwise, we're trending towards World War III, and it's scary. So hopefully, that comes to an end. Uh, we'll see. Anyway, uh, that, uh, that's, uh, that's my piece on Russia for now. All right, let's take a look at some commentary here. Welcome, Reaching for Reality, for being a new member here. This is Biden's fourth climate change. Natural disaster, but nobody wants to hold Biden accountable. Says Wally here. Someone else says, uh, I wouldn't sell a home in D.C. now. If the national average drops 10%, D.C. will only drop 5% at most. That's an interesting, uh, um, well, how, how should I call it, projection. Uh, Reaching for Reality says, the problem is electric cars are too expensive at this point for the common person. I run a restaurant and not one person in the company could afford a Tesla aside from the owner. That's one in 300 people. I mean, in fairness, you are also pointing at uh, a, a worker that that is in a less, uh, a lower, how should I say this in, in, in just sort of the most PC way? You're, you're talking about workers who are a lower income worker, right? Yes, it's true. At this point, electric vehicles are not affordable for most service industry workers, restaurant workers, uh, you know, expediters, hosts, of course not. Uh, even managers of, of restaurants, right? Some chefs are paid very, very well, but, but probably line cooks. Of course, that makes sense. Uh, and and I, I certainly wouldn't encourage uh, somebody uh, at that income level to even buy a new car, let alone a, a new electric vehicle. So I agree with you. Electric vehicles have to continue to fall in that cost curve. And hopefully we get some insight into how that cost curve is developing from Tesla's Investor Day on March 1st. But... Uh, but that doesn't make electric vehicles a bad problem, right? Uh, it just suggests that still a newer technology and the cost curve declines haven't occurred yet. So I, I don't think that's a way of saying that somehow electric vehicles are a problem or a bad investment. Uh, I feel like a diversification of energy is what would truly be best. The fact that lithium for batteries to get everyone on electric is 50, uh, 50 years out from being mined. Yeah, I, you know, here's the thing though. There, there will be more technologies that come up. For example, we're already looking at iron sulfur batteries uh, that essentially are no longer use lithium in the chemistry. So, it, it, and we don't, we don't yet know exactly what battery chemistry is going to take over. But there are a lot of uh, 
different types of batteries, whether they're solid states or different chemistries that get away from lithium. There are, there are a lot of ways to potentially, and then of course we could see advancements in refining technology. Uh, I, I'm not so terribly worried about commodities being able to catch up to support the demand for electric vehicles. Somehow we always end up innovating and, and finding a way to, to get around it. That's not to say we shouldn't work hard and invest in finding that solution. You know, that's how we end up getting the solution. But it's much like, you know, oh, when I was a child hearing, uh-oh, we're going to run out of oil in 50 years, that's it, you know, it's over. Uh, and, and then what ends up happening? Oh, wow, we find fracking and, and uh, wow, all of a sudden we've got enough oil. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, this is why I personally in the long term generally don't like to invest in commodities because I think there's generally uh, a way to change. Uh, if, if certain commodities are too expensive, we innovate around it. Uh, or if certain commodities are too expensive, we innovate ways to make them more, uh, more available. Uh, it's really remarkable. So, uh, you know, I, I, I suppose... In my opinion, a bet on, on commodities is almost like a bet against uh, human ingenuity. Yeah, I, I'm sorry if you're a commodities trader. You, you, you know, if Steve's here, for example, you know I'm not a big fan of commodities. And sorry, <laughs> uh, that's that's just my POV. Uh, it's no offense to you. We can, we can still have a beer, okay? And we can still hang out together. But not a, but not a big fan of commodities. <laughs> uh, what's up, Max? Course member here. Welcome, welcome. Uh, pretty sad you have to put a disclaimer before saying anything nowadays. I know, it is. It is. Uh, it's, um, the world has gotten very, very sensitive. Uh, I was just, uh, with, uh, with a family yesterday, and, uh, I, I won't get into too much detail, but they, they felt they had to disclaim, uh, certain objects in their house for fear of offending people in California. And I'm like, my goodness. I, I don't blame them for that. I blame society for that. Right? It's um, it's weird, you know, what's happening in California. It's, it's very weird. I, uh, I believe, and I mentioned this yesterday as well, I believe there will be not an armed revolution, but a revolution in California uh, within the next 10 years. I would make the projection that within the next 10 years, there'll probably be a substantial sweep uh, towards a different ruling party in California. Uh, I, I, I don't know with certainty, of course, but I, I would not be surprised. Anyway, uh, someone here says they blame tofu. Okay. <laughs> you showed a chart comparing the NASDAQ versus SPY earnings from the tech bubble. It's possible they were propped up by the top tech companies. I mean, even the top tech companies uh, of the NASDAQ were not very profitable uh, in the early 2000s. And if you're referring to recently propped up by the top, yeah, that's possible. Don't get me wrong. I think companies with bad pricing power uh, are, are going to suffer this year, even still. That's why I'm personally sticking to investments in companies that are heavily exposed to a lot of free cash flow, uh, strong margins, pricing power in the products uh, that they sell or the services they provide and uh, in, in a relentless uh, focus on profit uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, negative cash flowing businesses that are still trying to figure out how to drive a profit. I, I would stay far away from that. And, and we get speculative runs in, in companies like that all the time. I mean, you look at the speculative runs that you get in, in you know, Carvana or Open Door or Rivian 
it's just it's ridiculous. Those are sell opportunities. Those are short opportunities. You just have to be careful shorting any kind of momentum stock. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a great way to lose a lot of money. Short a momentum stock, but uh, anyway, this is just dangerous. Let's see here. <laughs> you like commodities because they are real. I mean, that's like an argument that like, oh, the, the you know, I think that's like basically saying, oh, the dollar's just fake money. Oh, I mean, that that's it's essentially making this this argument that our economy is just fake. You know, it's everything fake news. It's it's extremely tinfoil hatish. It's not to say that it's not true. I mean, our dollar's backed by nothing other than trust, but that trust has substantial value. And again, I'm not here to tell you that there aren't things that are rigged, uh, but uh, the country with the most trust is the United States. Whether that's right or not, the dollar does mean something. It is the most trusted fake money of the world. Uh, and uh, economies and, and lives are built around that trust. Uh, and so I think it's it's overly simplified to just say, oh, because it's backed by nothing other than trust, it's it's bad. <clears throat> it's not to say at some point the dollar won't become completely worthless. Every currency to every ever exist has has become worthless. Uh, and, and you know the dollar's only been around for a couple hundred years, and it's only been backed by air for what fifty something years. So yeah, I think fifty fifty actually years this year. So you know we're, we're still pretty young on our funny money. But I, I don't think that uh, is something that, that should somehow dissuade you from maybe investing, if anything. It should actually encourage you to invest. It should encourage you to invest in, in real assets like real estate or stocks. I think that might be somewhat of an argument that some people make too is, oh, stocks are just, you know, stock certificates are just paper. You know, I like commodities because I can pick them up and touch them. Like, Excuse me. Really, that that disregards the fact that shares are actually a representation of your legal ownership of a company that produces real profit, employs people, and actually makes goods or, or provides real services to people. Anyway, all right. So uh, let's now uh, let's uh, now jump over. <laughs> Someone says they ran out of tin foil. <laughs> That's a good one. Senator Sanders writes Google CEO on workers' right to unionize. Why is that even a headline? I mean, of course Senator Sanders thinks that. Like, what else is new? It's like saying the Pope's Catholic. <laughs> anyway. Um, all right. I want to take a moment to jump into uh, how, how we could be wrong, right, on, on the longer-term bull thesis. So let's touch on that. Uh, so that was, uh, what do we talk about? Commodities and fiat. Sure. All right. What if the bulls are wrong? What if the bears are right? And we're going into not just a temporary uh, tough period of time, dare I say, quote unquote, tough because, oh no, our stonks have gone down over the last year. What if... We're, as bulls, long-term wrong. That is, five to seven years of hell could be ahead of us. How would that change our investing outlook? And, and how could that actually manifest? Well, I think this is really important to pay attention to because markets right now are starting to price in and just starting to some potential 
wrongness. In fact, look at the expected terminal Fed funds rate up from 4.9 stable to 5.3, a suggestion that maybe higher for longer will end up being much longer, years longer rather than just a little bit longer, especially if inflation break-evens continue to break as they are on this screen right here, which show you the long-term downtrend that we've had over the last year of inflation expectations rotating down on the five-year break-even curve. That trend down has now broken back to the upside since the beginning of the year over the sign that the economy is still doing pretty dang well right now. After all, consumers still have uh, someone who on an average bank balance had $2,500 to $5,000 now sits at somewhere $12,800 of excess savings. Yeah, the excess savings rate has gone down because people are drawing down the excess savings, but those excess savings are substantially higher, leading to an economy that today is just, as American Express says, spending through this recession or whatever it is. But what if the real recession is actually ahead of us and not behind us? What if the real pain is in front of us? What could end up happening and how could that end up manifesting? Well, it could end up manifesting in that when we actually see a meaningful decline in real estate, then we could potentially see a meaningful decline in household spending, which could then actually set our economy into a real meaningful earnings recession and actual GDP recession. And that could mean that we are in an environment where maybe the Federal Reserve doesn't break anything, but where we're actually in a recession where the Federal Reserve cannot cut because inflation has stayed sticky for too long, meaning we're sitting at 5% rates and real rates that are substantially positive, and us re uh, or sort of undoing the inverted yield curve, as history has shown us, actually providing the most painful part of the recession that is still ahead. Said another way, the most painful part of an inverted yield curve is not the inversion, it's actually the re-steepening, and that suggests that the pain is still ahead. So the bears have an argument. The strongest argument the bears have is that inflation will be sticky, and that the yield curve's steepening will actually be the most painful part. And that could be combined with a real setup of fear from households, leading to a real crush of spending, which has not happened yet. After all, if we look at Robert Schiller, he's an economist from Princeton, famous for the case Schiller indices for real estate. He warns that it's actually not stock declines that lead consumers to spend less money. After all, we still have positive GDP. Yeah, we had a couple potentially negative quarters of GDP last year, which technically say we were in a technical recession, but nobody actually felt like we were in a recession from a sentiment point of view in 2022. In fact, as we've proven multiple times on the channel, people are spending through whatever this technical recession is that we're in right now. But what if that spending through stops? And what does Robert Schiller tell us? Well, Robert Schiller tells us it's not stock declines that lead people to stop spending money. It's real estate declines that lead people to stop spending money. And real estate is actually setting up for its most meaningful set of fear and pain this summer. That's still ahead of us. So if real estate hits pain in say May to June, where all of a sudden interest rates for real estate are potentially at 7%, roughly where they sit now as the 10-year treasury yield continues to rise up and condition, financial conditions continue to tighten. What if real estate does continue to suffer and peak fear is hit 
at the same time as rates are around 7%. Real estate prices year over year start actually showing 10 to 20% declines year over year in most markets, peak to now. That's already what's happened. It would take a price recovery to not show 10 to 20% declines once we hit May numbers. And when that fear sets in, <clears throat> is it possible that even less people buy real estate, institutions begin liquidating their real estate, and now home prices actually fall even more, especially as rents decline. As rents decline, it becomes more desirable to rent rather than buy. And the argument that, hey, I'll just pay 7% because I could rent out my property for a near break even or whatever goes away even more because rents fall, leading then eventually less people to buy real estate. Investors buy less real estate, home buyers buy less real estate, prices come down even more. Now what you potentially actually set up for is no floor put under the real estate market and consumers actually spending a substantially less amount of money because now we realize, uh-oh, here's the real recession. Real estate hits the real recession, which actually leads consumers which make up 70% of our economy, 72% by some accounts, to stop spending money. And that drives us into a real recession during a time where, thanks to people's excess savings, again, I understand the excess savings rate right now is low, but people's excess savings are substantially high right now, by some accounts two to five times as high as they were before the pandemic. But because of the fear that comes from actual household declines of wealth, now you walk into a real recession. This is the bear case. The bear case comes out and says, it's actually a substantial earnings recession that is, <clears throat> that is still, excuse me, I'm starting to lose my voice a little bit, substantially ahead of us and not behind us. <clears throat> this is what we see day in, day out in reports and equity research that I'm reading. Here's one from today from Barclays. You can see it dated February 21, that's today. And short of going through all of it, basically, earnings declines are still substantially ahead of us, with the most at-risk sectors being consumer discretionaries and growth stocks still trading for elevated multiples relative to the rest of the indices. You can actually see that, I believe, in one of these charts. Uh, but uh, short of going and finding exactly where the chart is, I'll just sort of give you the bottom line. But really, Barclays makes this argument that, look, we are seeing recessionary levels of earnings surprises. That is, we're looking very, very similar to 2006 and 2007 by many metrics when we're looking at some of the red flags popping up from earnings. This right here showing you the that the second quarter of 2022, uh, or sorry, the fourth quarter of 2022 has seen the weakest earnings surprise since the great financial crisis, with a modest 72% of companies beating forecast uh, EPS, or, or yeah, forecast Q4 EPS, but the uh, earnings surprise level being at the weakest level since 2007, suggesting maybe that the quality of forecasts going forward could actually be very, very low. And this sets up your bear case, right? This is the what if Kevin's wrong case, right? And it's really uh, a, a path of a combination of sticky inflation combined with peak housing fear uh, by let's say May 23, combined with the earnings recession, the red flags of which we're already seeing, combined with higher terminal rates. And consider this, a lot of folks right now, as American Express says, are spending through this pain, right? The same thing is what's actually happening with businesses and a lot of home buyers. 
home buyers and businesses right now are actually hiring to spend through the potential recession, right? The I'll put quotes around it because maybe we haven't hit the real recession, right? And that's a problem because if everybody believes that all of this inflation is going to end up being transitory, then what you have right now is earnings at companies and hiring of people and businesses that are spending and investing based on the belief that everything's going to be okay. But when the world starts realizing, oh crap, everything is actually not going to be okay, well then what do you have? Well, that's when you actually have layoffs. That's when you actually have people spending less money. That's when you actually have home buyers who don't go into buying a home right now because they think they can refinance in two years. That's a big problem, by the way. People right now are doing three to one loans, buying down their interest rate for a few years because they really believe that they can refinance in a few years and be back at a 3% interest rate. So the segment here on what if Kevin is wrong, let me be clear, there is a very real bear case that exists. And it is one of sticky inflation leading to uh, interest rates that are so high for so long that we do end up creating a peak fear environment for real estate. Again, that's rents declining. That's high mortgage rates. That's people realizing, okay, maybe we're not going to be able to refinance. Maybe it is cheaper to rent. Rent's declining. Now, all of a sudden, rents are declining. Now, you potentially walk into a bubble door, uh, a breaking, which is not to be confused with open door, which should go bankrupt, uh, but actually an Airbnb and vacation rental bubble, which uh, has potentially artificially inflated the asset value of real estate because people are under this impression that you can make so much freaking money from investing in real estate because real estate only goes up and, oh, rents only go up. And, oh, you could rent it out on Airbnb and make even more money. That's been true, but what if it's not anymore? What if all of a sudden more inventory comes on because people can't sell their homes and all of a sudden rental rates do crash? Then we do create an environment of peak fear where businesses, consumers, homeowners, and investments start drying up. And even though we have excess savings, once the, the belief that inflation will go away breaks and inflation expectations become unanchored, which they already are starting to, just look at the chart. It's already starting to happen, right? We have broken the long-term downtrend over the last year here of inflation expectations falling. Now, it's it's still, I mean, we could draw this line slightly differently too and suggest that, okay, well, come on. Like, it's still mostly okay. Like, sure, fine. I could draw the line like this and like this and say, okay, we're still on somewhat of a downtrend, right? Sure, we could play with it as much as we want. The pro and, and look, this has been volatile, right? And remember, I, I'm a bull at heart. I'm a bull at heart, but I'm providing the bear case because I like to be aware of what the bear case is. And the bear case is not good. The bear case is potentially one that suggests what we're actually walking into is, or, or where we are right now, is essentially we're on, we're on a pencil pedestal right now, is I think the best analogy. We're on a pencil pedestal and, and, the, and we're wobbling. And the belief is that, hey, look, all these numbers are great right now. Hey, look, people have more money in their bank accounts. Everyone still feels rich. Everyone's still hiring. Everything's great. People are making more money. Everyone's still happy. It's kind of like everyone's still drunk. And this is the bear case, right? And the belief is that it's going to take long 
But once it's realized by markets that, uh-oh, the genie of inflation is out of the bottle and it's not going to be easy to put it back in. Now maybe we can't refinance in a few years on homes. So uh, home values continue to fall for years and the real estate cycle continues to break as it generally does for a six-year down cycle or more, which does lead to a collapse of earnings. And that essentially that, that pencil pedestal falling away, people stop spending through the recession. Now the consumer actually drives the market into a recession. Now all of a sudden you actually do have serious pain at companies and real layoffs. And that's how you actually lead the unemployment rate to seriously rise. But until inflation, which tends to really lag what's actually happening, fully goes away, Fed can't cut rates to bail us out. And now you're potentially setting up for this sort of super bear cycle where maybe there is, I mean, and there is a real case for this, maybe you're in a bearish environment for the next five years. That could happen. I don't believe it. Maybe it's because I don't want to believe it, right? Maybe I don't want to believe that you could go through, you know, a five-year bear cycle of, of layoffs and, and not an expansionary market, right? I think uh, most investors right now uh, believe that we're going to go right back to an expansionary market. And, and that, that will be true, I believe, as if inflation does go away the way we expect it to. But the problem is because everybody expects inflation to plummet, they're still spending, right? And that's what's somewhat leading to the stickiness. Now, again, things are trending better, right? Leading indicators are suggesting it's fine. In other words, leading suggestions from company earnings calls, uh, from company earnings reports, uh, from inflation reports on leading data that we get on wage hiring trends suggest we are not in a situation of unanchored inflation expectations. We're not in a situation of a wage price spiral, which is good. But because of those signals and because of the signals that, yes, when we get your, you know, when we actually get housing inflationary data to show that inflation is plummeting and as long as inflation plummets and stays or, or stays stable, we can actually trend towards 2% inflation. And even if we trend towards 2% slowly and let's say rates stay at 5%, as long as anything doesn't break and we don't get a wage price spiral, then we could just sit at higher rates for another year or so. Even if it ends up being two years, it's okay. As long as people can spend through the next two years, we're good. And we get our Nike swoosh recovery. Everything slowly recovers. Everything's good. We already understand the bull thesis very well. But the bear thesis has a point. And the bear thesis is that because of all of this, uh, this spending through we're doing right now, we're really propping up the markets uh, and, and we're setting up this false expectation that inflation is going to be the genie we get to put back in the bottle. Uh, but if inflation stays sticky, yeah, there is the serious bear case. And the serious bear case is that you're going through probably another five years of hell. That's the bear case. It, and it's not coming soon, but that's what the bears are looking for. And it's not going to be something we'll know the answer to in three months. It's something that is probably going to take a year before we start realizing it. Uh, and, and then that's how you could potentially go into a longer run recession. Now, again, I don't believe that, but I think that is exactly how I could be wrong. And it all comes down to the stickiness of inflation and then eventually those that excess consumer spending uh, or savings being gone and true fear happening. We have not actually had true fear, but maybe true fear aligns with the steepening of the yield curve, which historically it always has. So the bears have that on their case, right? 
historically the worst part is the steepening. It's not the, the, the inverting. You know, people are like, oh, the inverted yield curve keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah, just wait for the steepening part. So there's the bear case. And I think the bear case is one that is very reasonable to, to pay a lot of attention to. I think it's very bad to get blinded by uh, pure bullishness, uh, especially temporary bullishness. But, but it is a, uh, a, a serious uh, concern. Uh, I don't think it's highly likely. Uh, but, but then again, I think everybody needs to come up with their own definition of, of uh, the odds of likely, likelihood for that. You know, I think the odds of us going into a five-year bear market uh, are, are relatively low, maybe 10 15%. But, uh, you know, this doesn't mean I'm going to be right about that. Certainly going to be paying attention to that and see how, how numbers adjust. But it's just my take. But uh, that's my take on how Kevin could be wrong. Anyway. All right. Let's take a listen to Jimbo over here for a moment. Let's see what he's got to say. Third consecutive quarter of EPS beats since the CFO joined. Uh, and we believe this will turn out to be conservative as well. Anyone who remembers Rainey at PayPal knows that he puts out a number. Uh, that is conservative. Not a number. David, he's not doing the beaten race. Right. Trying to generate that. He's a cautious individual. Some people are cautious. By the way, Some in, people this, are in this economic Some environment, people are reckless. in this economic environment, it probably pays to be cautious because, frankly, yeah. we don't know. I mean, right. so this, um, is, this is the soft landing versus hard landing. Yeah. I mean, Doug McMillan is a great guy. Yes, he he's very smart in what he's done. Uh, he's, the, the amount of what he's sourcing overseas. You know, he's sourcing in Indonesia, uh, uh, Sri Lanka. He, he's sourcing in Pakistan. Huge amount of clothes from Jordan, okay? Not all China, although obviously seasonals are China. Really, all he wants to talk about is how much was sourced in the U.S., right? If you ask him well, about all this Well, you stuff. know, the problem is the source of the U.S. He's going to just keep coming back to U.S. Well, it's lar I think it's largely, Mr. McMillan, I think, will still come on after I say this, um, largely food, but remember, they are a big grocer. But when I, when I pol police the aisles, not peruse, but police, I find two things that are made in America. One is polyvinyl flags, and the other is reverse tablecloths. Otherwise, I, I found much more made in uh, Eastern and Central uh, Asia. So you get down to that level of granularity. I have double sided no tablecloths no, and polyvinyl I, flags. Do you want to see the darn pictures? Do you want to no, see the I, pictures? I I'll show you the darn labels. I follow your no, Twitter no, no, no. I, I can tell you're doubting Tom. I'm Tom's. not a doubter. I'm not a doubter. Okay, well, look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Walking the aisles of Walmart this in your is spare Mr. time. Because well, why Burns wouldn't you want to? Tim Burns' story. Hey, you know, what, you know, we should. Uh, I think we'll go deeper in it. But uh, you know, Walmart's earnings were good this morning. We talked about those earlier. Let's take a quick look at it. Walmart investor relations. We'll go deeper in the course member live on some of these earnings. But let's just take a quick look at how Walmart is doing. Uh, and we'll take a look at their actual press release here. And let's see what they got in their financial tables. I'm curious. We'll do that together. It'll be like a little preview. Let's see here. So we jump over to Walmart. Let's go to their tables, revenues. Let's see how do they do relative to Home Depot. Since earlier we saw Home Depot takes like 10% to the bottom line, which is crazy. What is uh what does Walmart take to the bottom line? So Walmart has, let's see here, consolidated net income, $6.2 billion. My goodness, that's incredible. Uh, they've got a uh, hundred and uh, that's about twice as much, almost twice as much as Home Depot, uh, but obviously different size companies. Net sales, $162 billion. And their cost of sales are about 125. Well, that's substantially better than, uh, than Amazon. Uh, substantially. I mean, that's a uh, 77% cost of sales 
it's actually a, I mean, even for, I mean, for Walmart, also not that bad. It's no, it's no Home Depot, which is like a 67% cost of sales, which is just killing it. But, uh, wow, that's, uh, it's pretty impressive. Uh, how much are they taking to the bottom line? So if you go buy, buy something at, uh, at Walmart, how, how, how much they make if you spend a hundred bucks at Walmart. So they make roughly $3 and 85 cents. If you, uh, there we go, we'll write that right here. $3 and 85 cents comes to the bottom line. You spend a hundred bucks at Walmart, $3 and 85 cents is the bottom line. Kind of interesting. It's certainly better than uh, Cheesecake Factory or Red Robin, where when you go buy $100 worth of food for yourself, which is basically like salmon and like one drink these days, uh, they're losing money. Yeah, pretty wild. All right, I'm gonna make some more coffee, then we're gonna jump over to the course member live stream. Thank you all so much for being here. Really appreciate seeing you here in the morning. I'm gonna take my coffee, my uh, Pokemon mug here. And then follow me on Instagram. You can see where I was yesterday. Um, you can see me get glazed. And um, yeah, at me, Kevin, on Instagram. Check out the stories. I'll post more today. Today we're traveling for real estate. All right, folks, thanks again for being here. Goodbye.